Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics. And Marissa, you're back. I'm back. How was uh, vacation? Uh, it was it was great. It was probably, I was just saying to uh, Chris, it's probably the longest vacation I've ever taken. I was gone for about 17 days. And uh, I was in Japan, uh-huh. went to four of the five islands, went to South Korea. Wow. Um, yeah, it was wonderful. Good weather, everything okay? Yeah, it was very hot in Tokyo, um, in Kyoto. When I first got there, it was about 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh Uh And then as we went more south, it was kind of rainy and cooler. So that was that was nice. But it was wonderful. And I got to see our colleague, Stefan. I had dinner with him um, my last night there in Tokyo. So it was really nice. I heard and you had them on the podcast. I did. Steve, while I was gone. Yeah. Stefan was on. It went well. Yeah, he he's you know he's great. He's like uh uh I think he speaks like 10 languages or something. Uh very smart fellow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was um, fun. Good, good. And had you been to Japan before? No, this was my first time and it was and one of my top of my bucket list for travel, so that, you know, I was I was there last year this time, and I think I might have been the first foreign traveler to Japan after they've lifted their uh COVID restrictions. Yeah. There yeah, were a ton of tourists there. There was, oh, yeah, I could yeah. imagine. Yeah. 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 I remember uh, with great intrepidation going there because they had this app. You had to, f- you know, fill in all your information. You get off the plane and it, you know, you uh, would walk from the plane. I would walk from the plane to the, um, like the immigration um, area and I'd get stopped every 10 yards by another Japanese official mm-hmm. looking person. And the app, they ask, let me see your app. If it turned green, you could move forward. If it turned red, I don't know what happened to you. It, would happen it was like contact you. tracing or something? I or? don't know what they were doing. I couldn't <laughs> quite figure it out. But I, I'm, not, I'm not making this up. I think probably I got asked to show the red green thing almost 10 times. You know, And every time I had to hit the button, the red green, I, of course, I'm sweating. You know, Please don't <laughs> turn red. <laughs> I don't want to go in that room. But I made it through, uh, and so. But I'm glad. I'm glad you had a good time. That's great. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, very good to be, have you back. Good and you mentioned back. Chris. This is our, Lefa- our our colleague Chris Lafakis. Hey, Chris, you're on mute. Oh, rookie mistake. How <laughs> you doing, you Mark? Good, good, good to have you aboard. Because uh, you know we are going to talk about inflation and oil prices are a key part of that. So thought we'd have you on uh, again. So thank you for coming on. Thanks for inviting me. Happy yeah, to be here. Very good. And uh, also on the inflation front, we've got uh, Matt Colyar. Matt, good good to see you. Hey, Mark. Happy to see you. Great to You've be been here. on Inside Economics before, haven't you? Or uh, Yeah, a few months back talking months back. labor market stuff. Yeah, very good. Well, we're glad to have you aboard. And uh, finally, Gaurav Ganguly. Gaurav, good to see you from uh, London, no less. Are you in London? You were in I- India not too long ago. No, no, I'm, I was in India not so long ago on a business trip and in the Middle East. Um, but now I'm in London, so a big hello from from gloomy London. Yeah, and you look like you're in like a nondescript Moody's office. Uh, I am very much in a nondescript Moody's <laughs> office, which is very, very quiet on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> I, I, I mean, literally, you must be the only... This is Canary Wharf, right? Yes, exactly. And, uh, and I think you're right. Is anyone else there? No, there okay. might be two other people on, on this floor, and I think this floor seats over a couple of hundred. Yeah. Well, I think uh, that's the future. That's the here and now and the future, I suspect. And the future, yeah. yes. Yeah, good. And we're going to have, uh, we're going to dive into inflation in Europe uh, as well. 
uh, might give us some insight as to, you know, kind of what's going on with inflation here, I thought. And uh, so we're looking forward to that conversation. Um, okay. Uh, with that as an introduction, uh, let's turn to Matt, the big news of the week, uh, the consumer price index CPI uh, here in the U.S. Uh, you want to give us the rundown? What, what did it say and what's your interpretation of it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so before placing any value judgments, I'll just kind of go through the, uh, the the top line numbers. We're all so, about value judgments. Yeah, Matt. we're yeah, all about true. value. Well, we'll build the anticipation. I okay, guess, there you go. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, consumer price index headline inflation in September rose 0.4 percent from August. Um, so we're looking at average prices for a basket of goods and services. Track it closely to see how inflation is behaving in the U.S. Um, that point, uh, 0.4% increase in September was, as we expected, a little bit higher than consensus expectations, but but in the ballpark of what uh, kind of was assumed for the month. Uh, relative to a year earlier, CPI was up 3.7% in September. That's the same annual rate uh, as we saw in August. Um, uh, in August, the big story was energy prices. Energy prices jumped 5.6% um, in September much more modest, but still positive increase, which contributed to headline inflation's uh, increase. So energy, energy, energy prices rose 1.5% in September after that 5.6% acceleration in August. Uh, so not major relief. Um, it's early, but hopefully October and we're about midway through the month. Looks like uh, that'll turn around and be a different story next month. Um, so good segue probably to remove energy and look at core CPI um, where we exclude energy. Did you mentioned food. Your food, I guess was basically not uh, much 0.1 or something. 0.2% increase. Um, okay. So not a dramatic, no, no big deal there. Okay. Yeah. In, okay. in either direction. Um, so energy so, was up, no surprise. Uh, food was kind of typical increase. And so now core X food and energy where we saw a 0.3% rise in right. September. So again, aligning generally with the expectations, uh, the annual inflation rate for core CPI in September was 4.1%. So uh, a little tick down from 4.3% in August um, and its lowest rate in two years. So, and we back up just one year, September, this time last year, core CPI was 6.6%, uh, which is its high during the post-pandemic inflationary fight in the U.S., uh, so that's a 2.5 percentage point decline in core inflation. Still too high for the Fed and, and maybe not at the pace that, that everyone would have liked to have gotten uh, here, uh, but unambiguously a success story uh, because there hasn't been this simultaneous increase in joblessness um, and a reason why yesterday's report, like like the past several, uh, should generally be received warmly and uh Kind of give an encouraging outlook toward uh, about inflation's trend in the U.S. Um, I'll say uh, you you nailed this right because you do the you kind of predict based on other data what you think the CPI will be be uh, and you you were at 0.4 on top line and 0.3 on core and that's what we got. So you you got it you nailed it, but I'm not sure that's a as a lot of people got it roughly right, I think. Um, yes, and at, there's some offsetting surprises that makes it hard to gloat because the 0.4%, yes, it landed where we gloat. were. But, I, I would have gloated. Okay. I don't know. Marissa yeah. definitely would have gloated. You know, so. 
Why? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would have had excuses if we were wrong, but I'll. Oh, there you have, go. Have okay. some modesty that yeah. we got it right. So, okay. um, so those what those surprises were. Yeah, I think what were they? a lot of piece, people off guard were, were shelter costs. There's this story that you know rental. You know, the the way we measure the way the BLS measures shelter costs. There's this ongoing moderation. Rental prices shot up in 2022 and have moderated since, and and we're. Know, pretty confidently expecting this this moderation in shelters uh positive contribution to inflation um but in september there was a 0.6 percent increase from august um in july and august it was 0.3.4 percent uh that was our forecast kind of a continuation of that pace um so given the weight that shelter gets within cpi the acceleration was surprising and and carried a lot of uh influence. It was responsible for about half of the increase in overall CPI in September. Um, so surprising, but would be really surprising. Would it, should it be sustained given what we know about rental prices? So yeah, I mean, this goes to noise versus signal. I mean, right. you know, this felt like a lot of noise to me. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I think, and I, I, you look, you know, kind of in the more granular details um, and there's nothing there that jumps out that would have here to be like an inflection point and in, in, in a turnaround mm-hmm. in what we're, we're looking at. Uh, hotel costs were, were really high. That's part is, of shelters, lodging away from home or hotels. And that yeah. was, yeah. But and that's I, a small I, part of it, right? It is. And I, I haven't heard any convincing argument as, as to why this represents a change in trend. So yeah. I, I think we can be as confident that, that the coming months show more of the moderation, uh, disinflation that we see. So this is, uh, this is, when I say noise, it's statistical it could be seasonal adjustment who knows it's just this isn't going to be sustained we're going to go back to those 0.3.4 kind of months we were getting before this number and and it's not atypical that every once in a while you get a kind of a wacko number that's kind of off the rails and that uh, what you're saying i don't mean to put words in your mouth but i think that's a reasonable characterization um so i know other measures, you can start to cut out shelter. So, so if you look at CPI, just removing shelter costs, uh, it's a 0.3% increase and year over year inflation is is 2%. So you'll see a lot of that, especially on Twitter, people people trimming off different price metrics to, to get it underlying I did inflation. That. I did yeah. And I think Twitter. it's with, yeah. with shelter costs, it's, well, Paul Krugman did one that I think caught a lot of flack. He might've cut too much. So uh, yeah, he uh, cut a little too, he, too much. Well, yeah. I, I think it's fair. I, I use, tell me if you, you think I, overdid it i said mm-hmm. core cpi mm-hmm. x shelter that was up 0.1 percent in september this is my twitter at mark zandy by the way out at mark i haven't done that in a while 0.1 in the month and two percent on the nose year over year through september do you think that's i'm cutting out too much i mean my thought was we look at we look at core because that gives us the best forecast of the future and of course, if shelter is the thing that's driving core and you take that out, you get a sense of kind of underlying inflation broadly that's going to be key to the to the inflation outlook. That was my my logic. Does it make sense? I think that does make sense. And I think the rationale being fluctuation in these those the the the, the items that you're excluding, it's hard to see how those things represent the wage growth that everyone's really concerned with. So shelter costs aren't directly representative of, of wage pressures and, and kind of the main concern for the Federal Reserve. So I'm, I'm sympathetic with with cutting those things. I think when people see more than one and excluding energy and food yeah. and yeah. housing and used cars, that's, I think, <laughs> I think that's uh, a bridge too far. But um, yeah. yeah, but on, on the on the used cars, I mean, that 
that they, they those prices have been falling. So I'm not sure that helped him out when he did. Yeah. That. To make um, it, you're talking about Paul Krugman in his mm -hmm. tweet. It didn't yeah. it didn't help out his case, but which uh, was the the next surprise, and and like you mentioned, it moved in the opposite direction. We had yeah. expected. Um, used vehicle prices to drop 0.5% from August to September, and they fell 2.5%. Um, the the decline was we foresaw, given what we know about wholesale prices and how they, on a lag, lead into retail prices. So so what the dealerships are, are going to auction and buying used cars for uh, and then selling, uh, that's a pretty good indication uh, what they're buying at the auction, what retail prices are going to be a few months down the road. Um, talking with our resident expert, Mike Brisson, about you know why was this, you know, substantially more than than we anticipated um it seems like a lot of that that coming that that decline from wholesale to retail prices seem to be condensed into a month we expected to to kind of uh take the rest of the year for that decline to happen we might have pulled mm -hmm. forward for uh any number of reasons but um yeah in a given month it, that it kind of canceled out a little bit and and helped us stay on track for our forecast uh given the increase in shelter costs that we did not anticipate um, of course, the uh, the the weight in the consumer price index for shelter is a lot, lot bigger than the weight on used vehicles. That's a small piece of the pie. I don't know what it is, but it's one or two percent at most of the index, right? Right. Used vehicles. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just under three percent, but the scale of okay. it uh, moved in that direction to a degree. Yeah. But but okay. you're right. Um, that's the general synopsis of it. Um, of note, too, um, with September's report. That closes out Q3. That's what Social Security Administration uses to dictate uh, the following year's increase in Social Security payments. Um, so that 3.2% increase that, that has been uh, well published uh, over the past 24 hours came from uh, the final price information we have from September. Uh, so that follows 87, an 8.7% increase in January of 2023. And now... Uh, by when we turn the calendar to 2024, you'll see a 3.2% increase in social security payments, uh, hmm. which is uh, about a reasonable given what uh, inflation has done over the, the past year. Yeah, of course, that big cost of living adjustment last year provided a lot of juice, didn't it? I mean, that was a over 8%, you said, mm -hmm. increase. That's a pretty significant increase for social security recipients. And that, I think, could probably help consumer spending a bit this might not help it quite as much even though inflation's back in it, you know just feels like we're not going to get as much juice um okay any so those are the big surprises um you know uh what's your sense of where we're headed i mean you know bottom what what's, what really matters here is are we headed back to an inflation rate that we all feel comfortable with and probably more importantly that the federal reserve feels comfortable with and on the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, uh, the target probably is no higher, probably somewhere between two, two and a half percent, no higher than two and a half. Just by construction, it's different than the core consumer expenditure deflator, which is the official inflation measure the Fed uses for its target, which is two percent. Um, what do you think? Are we still on track uh, to get back to uh, that that kind of target over the course of the next six, 12 months? My belief is that this story that we've been telling for the past year has kind of played out as expected. Um, there could be gripes about about pace um, and about you know monthly vagaries, but in general, the shelter, uh, the the declining contribution from shelter is something we are confident in. Um, looking just to next month, I don't think I, I think we'll see a negative contribution from energy, so you won't have the 
kind of the top line boost that we've had the past two months, uh, particularly in August. Um, that last mile will be really hard um, for the Federal Reserve to, to finally feel comfortable that inflation is is at a you know sustained near their target range. Uh, but I see no reasons now why that would uh, uh, that the economy is too resilient and policy would need to be uh, restricted a lot more than it currently is to to get there. I think we're on the right track. Um, maybe patience okay. is the right so- word. So connecting the dots back to the Fed, the chair, Fed Chair Powell, I don't know how long ago, maybe a year ago, uh, identified super core infl- inflation, uh, and that was uh, services, uh, service inflation, I believe, ex-housing energy and housing services, I believe, uh, memory serves. Did you, did you look at that at all? Have you looked at that? I ha- I know on a year I have that in front of me. I haven't looked at it. it's like three month moving average trend, which I think is the most useful. But okay. a year year ago, I believe it's just under four percent. Okay. Right now it's about three point seven, three point eight. Okay. Um. So in the same spirit of disinflation, but but not ready to not quite there victory. yet. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And of course he picked that because that's the part of the inflation index that is most closely related to the labor market wage because these are labor intensive activities healthcare hospitality that kind of thing labor intensive and that's the, uh, the the health of the labor market the strength of the labor market is the one thing that the federal reserve can influence through monetary policy and raise rates cause the labor market to ease and take pressure off wages and get that inflation rate down so that's why he focused on it and and so you're saying it's still too high but moving in the right direction yeah that's how i would characterize it and i don't think the labor market is um sending material different materially different signals right now uh still really tight uh but certainly not accelerating wage growth okay 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 very good hey uh mercy you heard all that any uh any gaps in the the rundown that you want to point out or anything you want to emphasize um I, I think that was very comprehensive and generally I agree that things are moving in the right direction. I think core getting core inflation under control is is a little trickier. Um core inflation is now back above 3% on a 3 month moving average basis. So it's it's ticked up the past couple of months. Matt talked a lot about shelter it uh, the big pop was this lodging away from home right that that was the big turnaround in the data so that had fallen for two months straight and then it had a big increase last month i know that's a small part um but that's one of the the items in the shelter category that contributed to the pop up in shelter inflation but so was owners equivalent rent accelerated over the month as well which is the um, you know, implied uh, price that a homeowner thinks they could rent their home for. So that was up a, a bit over the month as well, that accelerated. So it seems like the shelter shelter generally is moving in the right direction. It may take a little bit longer to get back down enough to, you know, bring core inflation under under control. If you just take take core, shelter contributed 70%, I think, to the increase in core inflation over the month. Um, I think the real key, and Matt mentioned this, is looking at other service segments that um, have seen higher costs, right? So if you look at food away from home accelerated again, so 
This is kind of restaurant takeout prices. That kind of goes back to the tightness in the labor market. It goes back to the strength in wages and leisure hospitality, which have come down quite a bit, but are still running over 5% year over year. So I think that's going to be key to getting kind of all of that under control. Just a few other items I would point out kind of in the line item of CPI to watch are um, uh, homeowners insurance and rental insurance has, has been very strong in terms of price increases, and that too contributed to the shelter number over the month. Um, so those are just other items to watch. I think, you know, stripping out all these things out of core, right? You're you're not left with a whole lot. But I do agree that shelters coming down, we have good data on real-time rental signings to know that new leases being signed uh are showing disinflation or in some cities deflation from where they were a year ago. So that you points to decline in improvement. Rents. Say that again. You mean outright decline? When you say deflation, you mean outright decline in market yeah, rents. Yeah. So, so we know in some markets, rents that are being signed today are lower than where they were a year ago. In other cases, the increase in rental prices is just slower than it was a year ago. Yeah, so but that nationwide varies. market rents are basically flat, I think. Yeah. Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Year so you have some year. up, some down. Right. Yeah. So okay. I, I generally agree with that take. I think given the strong jobs report that we had, you know, last week too. I mean, I think that the Fed is definitely would not be surprised if they do another rate hike this year. Um, they still have a very strong labor market. Even some of the data that we got this week on the labor market continues to be strong. And it's really going to be key to getting wage growth under control. We'll get um, another reading on wages at the end of the month. The, the employment cost index will come out I think on the 31st of October. So we'll see what wage growth looks like for Q3. I think that'll be um, key to, to what they do in the coming months. But yeah, well, one, um, appreciate that, Marissa. Uh, Matt, one uh, more uh, uh, technical question. Uh, I've been waiting for new vehicle price. We talked about used vehicle prices. They have declined and it feels like it. they're based on auction prices, wholesale prices, as you mentioned. They're Looks like the, the that those declines are now largely over. Not that we'll get increases, but the declines are over. But we've been waiting. I've been waiting for new vehicle prices to uh, roll over. They, of course, they went skyward too during the pandemic because global produce, uh, vehicle producers couldn't produce, inventories collapsed, and prices went skyward. And with the UAW strike, I, I suppose we shouldn't count on those prices coming down until the strike is over and we get production back up. But you know, shouldn't we see new vehicle prices start to come in on the other side of the UAW strike? The offsetting strike for the, uh, just looking near term, the idea that inventories are not going to be able to keep up uh, beyond the strike been, after yeah. the strike. Um, I, I don't have a strong sense on on whether that will uh, if, if the if the strike were to extend past November and, and longer than we're anticipating. Uh, I, I have thought about whether that's where you see prices increase or at least slow down any kind of disinflation. Um, but that would be uh, the kind of things I hit my person up and, and talk to. to have a okay, so you don't have a view on whether, because no. it's just, you know, they're, they're very elevated. Uh, they're not rising significantly, although they rose last month a little bit, a couple of times, but, but, uh, but you know, they seem very inflated relative to, uh, uh, you know, what, what would be affordable at this point. And you would expect, 
again, on the other side of the UAW strike, when production normalizes, that we would start to see some price declines there. Um, okay, well, uh, you know, in my view, uh, the report was right down the strike zone, uh, you know, consistent with the idea that while inflation is still too high, uh, uncomfortably high, you know, for the typical American household or, or for the Fed, it's it's definitively moving in the right direction. And everything points to it continuing to moderate and getting back to something we all feel comfortable with, including the Fed, you know, by this time next year. And it, it really, you know, we forecast so many things and some things we feel, I, I feel pretty confident in, some not so much. That This I feel pretty confident in because, um, you know, going to the cost of shelter, that is tied to market rents with a long lag. And by construction with these flat to down market rents, we're going to get much slower growth in the cost of housing services as we make our way into next year and through this time next year. And again, if you, you know, look at kind of underlying inflation, uh, excluding shelter, we're already back to target. We're already back to that two, two and a half percent. And if shelter, you know, sticks to the script that I just enunciated and everything suggests that it will, that means inflation should be back, you know, to target as well. So I, I feel pretty good that, you know, we're on, on track here. And I'd be pretty surprised, Marissa, if the Fed would raise rates another time at this point. I, I just don't see it. Not only because inflation is coming in, not only because the labor market is easing, but the other thing is financial conditions have tightened, meaning, you know, long-term rates have risen, the stock market is softer, the value of the dollar has increased. I mean, you're now hearing Fed officials saying, oh, okay, maybe, you know, with the tightening in financial conditions, we don't need to raise rates. And I, I, I suspect at this point, uh, there will be no no further rate increases. Not not that they're going to cut rates anytime soon, but I, I'd be at this point pretty surprised if they, you know, start to raise interest rates um, any further. They're already pretty high. Okay, um, let's uh, let's dig into this a little bit deeper, Grav. Let me bring you into the conversation. You know, uh, uh, if you look globally, uh, particularly in Europe, uh, which is uh, kind of where you planted your flag, uh, the Inflation there remains also took off here a, a couple of years ago, and also remains, you know, very elevated. Um, uh, in fact, it feels like it's a little bit more. It's being more stubborn in Europe than it is in the United States. Is that is that? Well, first, first of all, let me ask you what what do you think is behind the higher inflation broadly, particularly in Europe, and um, what's behind. Did I characterize things about it being a bit more sticky and, and what's behind the stickiness? Why isn't it coming in uh, as quickly, uh, you know, as it would be here in the United States or other parts of the world? That's a lot to, lot to unpack. So, so yeah, that was take, a lot. I, I apologize. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's all right. That's all right. It's Friday afternoon, Mark. Brain's not it, working that oh, well. Oh, that's true. It's Friday evening it, here it, in London. It, it, it? Exactly. And it's gloomy. But let me, let me take a step back, perhaps. And as you say, inflation took off uh, a while ago in across the world, right? Well, I plant my flag in Europe and also the Middle East, as you know, and uh, in the Middle East, inflation never really took off for a whole bunch of different reasons, but we can park that for now, but it certainly took off in Europe. And there was the pandemic and the spring back from the pandemic, supply chains were scrambled and that's already started to add to inflationary pressures, to price pressures back in 2021. And then Russia invaded Ukraine. And when that happened, 
oil prices went up around the world, but Europe got slammed on a couple of other fronts as well. And, and that contributed significantly to European inflation and drove a wedge between European inflation and inflation in other high inflation areas of the world. So European gas prices went up a lot. Europe relied a lot on Russia for imports of gas and was completely slammed by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So European gas prices um, went up really quite a lot and uh, Europe couldn't move around. Gas prices are much more regionalized, as you know, so it wasn't just a, a, Europe wasn't able to just quickly substitute away for gas in other parts of the world. And there was a lot of significant price differential. And then European food prices went up by more than in other parts of the world, because Europe was also particularly exposed to um, grain imports from Russia and Ukraine, and also to fertilizer imports from Russia and Ukraine. And fertilizers, um, the fertilizer imports, um, that, that went away. And Europe had to make its own fertilizers with higher gas prices, um, gas being quite a significant input into fertilizers. So European food prices went up a lot as a result of some specific factors, and gas prices went up a lot. All in all, European inflation went up to, well, Eurozone and the UK, I'll take those two together, or, or just compare and contrast those. Inflation went up to about 11% by October last year. Hmm. Since then, there's been a climb down. And when you talk about sticky inflation, I think it's useful to compare and contrast the UK and the Eurozone because price persistence or sticky inflation does seem to be more, much more of a problem in the UK. So right hmm. now, on August data, UK inflation was 6.7%. And in in the same month, inflation in the Eurozone was 5.3%. And we have preliminary data for it, inflation in the eurozone in September and it's dropped like a like a stone to four point three percent. So one percent come off eurozone inflation. Not expecting such a big drop in inflation in September in the UK. It's probably going to come down 0.3 of a percent or so. Standard about six point four percent. That's year on year price growth. So that's the difference. It, much more price persistence in the UK. Um, much less so in, in the Eurozone. Looks like in the Eurozone, things are coming down quite fast now. I wouldn't be surprised if in October... So, so just just for context, so you uh, this is through the month of September, 6.7% consumer price inflation year over year in the UK. You said, what is it in, in the Eurozone? So we don't have um, data don't for have the September same yet. month. The, the, okay. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. August inflation in the UK was 6.7. Okay. September inflation in the Eurozone was 4.3. Oh, August 4 inflation in the Eurozone was 5.3. So okay. if you compare compare the same month, it's 5.3 versus 6.7. And Matt, so, what is it in the US? Uh, it, it's what, 3.7 or something? Top top line inflation year over year? I think it's 3.7. Three three seven. Seven. Okay. Seven, okay. Yeah. So that gives us some kind of context. So, so that gives you the range of yeah. inflation across right. these. So you're saying regions. the eurozone is coming in pretty consistently with the U.S. Uh, maybe a little bit hotter, but not. You know, we're splitting hairs here now. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's some there's some similar themes, despite all these differences in food mm -hmm. and and energy mm -hmm. and, and the natural gas story. There are also some similarities in the themes that we see now. Um, Core inflation has been dropping in the eurozone, and it actually dropped a lot in, in in September. And we can see a weakening in in goods prices, and we're also starting to see some healthy weakening in service sector prices. Service sector prices were buoyed up by um, increase in demand, spring back from the pandemic, um, and and also high energy and food costs. But, but that's that's starting to come down now. And you can really see that. This is not just a one-off. Feel like this is quite structural now. So these these disinflationary forces and in goods and services will continue. Um, in the UK, 
that's also evident, particularly in the goods segment. That's evident. You can see that cooling off of goods prices. You can see uh, the beginnings of a climb down in the service sector. And I'd say, but I'd say the key difference uh, between the UK and the eurozone is really price persistence in the service sector. It's service sector inflation. So that difference between six point seven and five point three—that almost one point four percent difference—a lot of that is service sector inflation. And and that looks like it's set to stay. And if I had to take the next step and say what's driving that difference in service sector inflation between the UK and the eurozone, I'd 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 um, you know I I would I I would bet on wage wage the wage differential, the wage different difference in wage growth. So in the UK wage growth is running at about eight percent, and the eurozone wage growth is running at about five percent. So I think that's really a, a key determining factor in in the wedge in service sector inflation across the two country, two areas between the Eurozone and the UK. And it also helps explain why UK inflation is so much more persistent than in the Eurozone. So um, one of the reasons why I thought it would be useful to have this conversation about European inflation is that it highlights a, a broader point, and that is the inflation we're experiencing here in the US is not just a US phenomenon. It's really a developed world phenomenon uh and europe is a is a, is a good example of that and and that goes to uh, the fundamental reason why inflation is the problem that it is and in my in my view and i think you 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 said this in not so many words but you said it it's really about the supply shocks that the global economy has been struggling through i mean it was the pandemic supply chain disruptions that resulted labor market disruptions that resulted. And you you also mentioned the Russian war in Ukraine that ver- reverberated around the world, but Europe obviously took it on the chin more than anywhere else. So it's those supply shocks that are at root here. Uh, would you c- concur with that perspective? Absolutely. And in fact, let me add some more supply shocks, ones that we don't um, really talk about that much and that are quite specific. So food inflation in Europe is has been quite high, and it's taking its it's taking its time to come down. It it seems to be very very hes- hesitant to climb down. And I was taking a look at this, trying to understand what it is that's driving food inflation in Europe. And my my prior had always been fertilizer prices, mm-hmm. and that that's that's the the piece I was talking about earlier. Europe was of course slammed by high energy costs, and also by the fact that it couldn't get fertilizers from Russia and Ukraine any longer once the war started. Um, but there are other supply side shocks affecting agriculture in Europe. So it's things like climate change. Hmm. So very high, very very hot summer last year has resulted has decreased the fertility of herds. So, hmm. you know, pig breeding has gone down, and <laughs> cattle breeding has gone down. Right? There's this. Um, climate change policies in place that are also uh, making it difficult for farmers to expand their herd size. And so that's that means that meat production's down, basically, supporting higher meat prices, while at the same time, farmers are also facing higher input costs. So you've got supply-side shocks of all sorts. Mm. Um, there's an interesting report out there that suggests that um, El Nino might simply add another 10% to food prices over the next couple of years. Uh, so we've got to watch out for further further upward upward shocks to food prices from climate change. So there are a bunch of supply side shocks occurring of all sorts. The big ones have been the pandemic and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But when you drill down into specific sectors, you can find some other supply shocks there as well. Well, I, 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 that, that is fascinating. Uh, I was thinking more optimistically until you said that all that about climate risk, with the the idea being 
hey, look, these supply shocks, the pandemic, Russian war, they're increasingly in the rearview mirror. Their the economic fallout is fading, and that's why inflation is coming in. And, and by this is another point of a comparison. The inflation here in the U.S. is coming in at the same time as the economy has remained solid. I mean, creating a lot of jobs, unemployment remains very low. <clears throat> we have not had to see a significant weakening of the economy, certainly not a recession, certainly not higher unemployment to get you know inflation back in. And that's, be again, because if the inflation is due to the supply shocks and they're fading, then uh, uh, the inflation should fade without a weaker economy. Same kind of dynamic playing out in Europe, right? Uh, abstracting from the these other shocks you just mentioned in terms of climate. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Similar sort yeah. of dynamic playing S out in Europe. Dynamic. Because you haven't seen, you've seen some weakness in like Germany, for example, where it's more on the front line of uh, of uh, the problems in, in Russia and Ukraine. And they've got other issues with regard to China. But generally, the but even despite that, unemployment in the Eurozone remains very low, I believe. Yeah, unemployment is the labor market is 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 the one bright spot in the economies of across the economies of Europe. The really amazingly low um, unemployment rates, some some softening in in the labor market visible now. So we're starting to see in the UK, for instance, this is a good example. We've seen a pickup in the unemployment rate in recent months, and that small pickup in the unemployment rate is is not because firms are letting people go, but it's because more and more people are coming back into the labor market. People that left during the pandemic. And said they never never wanted to come back again into the labor market. Well, the cost of living squeeze on these people is such that they're re-entering the labor market, and that's not happening in a graceful way. So they're not all coming back into jobs. In fact, many more are coming back into the unemployed pool than in, than, than re-entering into the into the labor market and getting into the employed pool. So that's driving up unemployment a little bit. Firms are also um, toning down their their aggression in hiring. So vacancy rates are coming down. Um, employers' employment expectations, particularly in the goods sector, is softening. Um, you, you mentioned Germany. That's a good case in point. German manufacturing is quite weak for a number of reasons. Um, one of these is just weak global manufacturing conditions. Over the course of the year, we've talked about, uh, we've hoped for a pickup in manufacturing conditions globally, particularly once China reopened, but that's not happened yet. Mm -hmm. So manufacturing in Germany is quite weak. So there's another spot of weakness, potential weakness in the labor market. Uh, but overall, the labor market's been really good. It's been the one source of support. Consumption hasn't been as good, particularly in the Eurozone. Consumption's been really weak. Um, it contracted in Q4, it contracted in Q1. We sort of hope it'll pick up in Q3 and Q4 that Consumers are fed up. They've had enough of of, of tightening the tightening the belts, and they're going to go out and spend a bit. Um, but we're not that hopeful. Uh, yeah, in the a, UK, a, consumption is probably going to slow down as high interest rates bite. I, I think that is one big difference between Europe and the US. In the US, consumers have had no problem spending their so-called excess saving, the saving they built up during the pandemic that they wouldn't have done otherwise. I don't think that's the, nearly the case in in Europe. They've been much more consumers have been much more cautious in spending that uh, excess savings. That's there. right. That's right. I was looking at I was looking at UK um, household savings, looking across all deposit types from mm. um, you know equity investments to cash into type to, to to site deposits, and clearly that went up massively during the pandemic because of the UK government's furlough scheme, which gave people eighty percent of their wages, uh, and and households accumulated all of that, but they've spent very little of that. 
since. And in fact, my intuition tells me looking at other data that when they are spending it, they're actually spending it to pay off debt. So they're paying off their mortgages rather than mm. using that cash to go out and buy goods and services. So they're oh, very, very cautious. And if I look across the Eurozone, I can see that savings rates went up during the pandemic, just in line with you know the same, same stories in the UK. They then came down, but actually savings rates have started to tick up again. I think economic uncertainty is weighing on, weighing on households. Yep. Going back to inflation, though, you, you, you do bring up a really important point about the the supply side shocks created by climate, the the heat stress, and now the the transition to a, a green economy, um, and that is uh, those things are going to add to inflation as we move forward. So, I think we need to make a distinction between you know kind of the dynamics, inflation dynamics here, and then very near term, and and there I think we're on solid ground in my view, thinking that inflation is going to moderate get back to something central banks and everyone feels comfortable with as the supply shocks from the pandemic and Russian war fade. But we're still left with these other uh, supply issues, uh, some of it related to climate risk that you mentioned, that will continue to play a role. And that's that is a reasonable concern about underlying inflation, you know, going forward. Would you would you what what do you think about that? Would you concur with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And and you're you're right about that degree of certainty we we've got we've got a fair handle we've got a good handle on inflation dynamics right now uh, we've 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 lived through the pandemic and the russian invasion we've studied the data we've seen changes day by day month on month and we have a pretty good view of how this is going to work out there's much greater uncertainty in the medium term over the progress of prices so if you look at agriculture the, the example i picked all those factors will weigh on agricultural prices going forward and i don't know you know exactly how that will all crystallize. So you know, Europeans eat a fair bit of pork, it's the biggest exporter of, of, of big products. Um, but there's a lot of pressure on herd sizes. Um, there's a lot of pressure on 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 through through this through heat stress. That's caused a huge problem with herd sizes. And then agricultural policy creates other issues. Behavioral change comes along and Europeans start consuming less prosciutto and parma ham, right? Um, I don't know exactly how that's going to play out. Um, but certainly it's it's not it's pointing more towards up, up, upside risk on prices than to downside risk. Um, and then we've got broader geopolitical issues that could cause structural structural shifts in prices. And I don't know, you know again, we'll have to navigate those waters and see how that plays out. Right. Good. Okay. Um, let's, uh, let's move on. Uh, let's play the uh, statistics game. Uh, are you, are you guys playing? Gravi playing? Uh, Matt? Uh, yeah, I can play. Okay. Very good. Marissa, you're up for this? Oh, yeah. I know you were on vacation, been, not thinking about this stuff, but you got a, you got a good stat. I have a reputation to defend. So yes, I'm, you I'm do. Back. Yeah. In fact, I was. Uh, you guys have had it easy the past couple of weeks. I was singing your praises when you were away, for sure. <laughs> uh, just to remind everyone, the stat game is we all come forward with a stat, a statistic. The rest of us, the rest of the group, tries to figure that out with questions, clues, deductive reasoning. The best stat is one that uh, is not so easy; we get it immediately. Not one that that's not so hard; we never get it. And if it's uh, apropos to the topic at hand, which I guess is inflation, uh, then all the better, but it doesn't necessarily need to be the case. So uh, let's go with Matt. Let's go with you first, because you're the you're the stats guy. You're deep into the into the data. Oh, no, wait, that's a mistake. We always start with Marissa. I, I'm losing my mind. Uh, you were gone for so long. I, I, I you got, got used to being gone. Yeah, sorry, Matt. Sorry. Uh, that's okay. Stand down. <laughs> stand down. I know Marissa, you're ready to go. If Marissa takes mine, I don't. 
that won't seem fair, but <laughs> that's true. That's a good yeah. point, which happens regularly. But yeah. you have, I'm sure, Matt, you have plenty up your sleeve. So I think you'll be okay. I think Maybe. I'll be fine. Yeah. He's a big boy. He'll be fine. Okay. Ready? Yeah. Go ahead. Far away. 60.7. 60.7. Um, is it an inflation statistic in no. the CPI? No. No. Is it an ISM measure? No. That didn't come out. That came out last week, I think. Is it um it's a stat, stat that came out this week? Yes. Is it a government statistic? No. <clears throat> is it NFIB from no. the NFIB? It's not from the NFIB, sir. National Federation of Independent Business. Okay. Uh is it labor market related? No. Oh my gosh. Okay, we're we're, is, we're toast guys. Is it what's a, the units? Is it a sentiment measure? It is a sentiment measure. Uh, hey, did university, something came out today. Uh, I haven't had a chance to look. University of Michigan came out today? It, yeah. Is it from the survey, that survey? It is. Oh, is it? Is it the actual survey number? <laughs> it's not the top line number. It's not the top line. It's uh, present conditions or ex expectations. <laughs> I don't know. Right. It's expectations. Yes. It's now, expectations. Now okay. that you guessed all all three possible numbers. <laughs> That's my strategy. Overwhelm <laughs> you with the, just everything. So 60.7. Okay. So that's the university of Michigan survey. It did. It just, it just, you know, it just it came just out popped. this morning at okay. 10 o'clock. So uh, guys, now does that seem fair to you? That seems like it a low, was before low. the podcast started. Really? It all came yeah. out at 10. 30 minutes before. before. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fair so enough. this okay. is the, so university of Michigan consumer sentiment index for the month of October. Um, this had been improving, Right. And then in uh, the month of October, it fell quite a bit, which is consistent with this index being extremely sensitive to measures of inflation and in particular to energy prices and gas prices. So we know that gas prices, um, they didn't increase as much over the month of October as they did in September, but they're still obviously very, very elevated. Um, inflation is still, you know, it's going in the right direction as we talked about, but it's still above the Fed's target. I picked the expectation measure. So there's two measures within the overall measure. There's consumers' assessment of current economic conditions, and then there is their assessment of uh, future economic conditions six months hence. It fell from 66. This is a this is a diffusion index. It fell from 66 in September to 60.7 in October. So it was quite a big decline, and it's the first decline in the index in um, a few months. And it was quite a big one. This puts the index now uh, back to where it was or, you know, as lower than where it was. You have to go back to a, a few months to May of this year to get uh, the expectations index this low. It's the it's only the second time it's fallen since May too. So we'd seen seen the steady improvement. Um, inflation expectations, they also ask consumers, mm -hmm. what's your expectation of inflation going forward? That jumped also. Oh. Um, and, you know, again, this survey, there's a couple of expectation surveys. There's this one, University uh -huh. of Michigan, there's the conference board. The conference board tends to be much more sensitive to conditions in the labor market, which explains why it's been a lot better than Michigan, yeah. right, over the past few years, because the job market's been strong, inflation's been uncomfortably high. They ask consumers what their uh, expectations of inflation are. It, 
their long-term expectations of inflation. So five years hence, um, climbed to 3% um, after dropping to 2.8% in September. So uh, year ahead expectations rose even more. They rose to 3.8% in October from 3.2% in September. So again, just on the topic of inflation, consumers are very, very sensitive to changes in inflation. That's how they perceive their own personal financial uh, you know, uh, how they assess their own financial sort of position. And in particular, they're very sensitive to gas prices and energy so, prices. So uh, the University of Michigan survey for the month of September, one year ahead inflation expectations. What was that? Do you know? Um, let's see. I, I think I just said it, right? 3.2, I think. What is, is right? it? Um, it was 3.2. Now it's 3.8 for the preliminary reading of October. For the month. Oh, I'm sorry. It was 3.2. That's right. It and, went yeah, from so, 3.2 to 3.8. Yeah. Okay. And uh, that's obviously very closely tied to the cost of a gallon of regular unleaded. That If right. that goes up, then inflation expectations go up. Okay. Okay. Um, so I tend not to look at the University of Michigan survey. <laughs> Just just because it feels so, I mean, out of bounds, right? I mean, if you take a, take a step back, look at what the index is. It's saying I'm I'm as pessimistic now as I was in the teeth of the pandemic. I'm as pessimistic now as I was in the teeth of the great financial crisis. Does that make sense? Does that even smell test? Doesn't. Right? No, and and generally, I I agree with you that I've discounted measures of consumer sentiment quite a bit, just simply for the reason that the way consumers have been answering these surveys has been very inconsistent with their actual observed behavior in terms of consumer spending, right? If, if, if people are this pessimistic about the economy, they should be pulling way, way back on what they're doing, right? They yeah. should be saving yeah. more, they should not be spending. But I still think it's an it's important because sentiment has a way of sort of becoming this pervasive thing, right? And there's a lot of psychological components to the way consumers behave. And if sentiment sort of continues to snowball and and people start to feel like things are getting worse or will get worse. No, no, don't don't get me wrong. I agree with all of that. I, yeah. I mean, I, the, yeah. the, re and the reason I, the I University of Michigan survey doesn't seem like it's useful. I mean, cause it doesn't, it, it's not, it doesn't square with anything. Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean the, the reason I picked it is because of, I, I, I'm not trying to be, I'm not critical of why you picked it. It was a good statistic to pick. So I, I didn't mean it that way. I just, I mean, the conference board survey just feels it, it passes a smell test, right? If you look at it, the level of the index is the conference board survey, the one you mentioned, is consistent with his like long run average. And that kind of sort of makes sense, right? I mean, even though unemployment's very low, inflation's very high. Okay, so they wash out and you're kind of stuck in the middle here. That and that's consistent with what consumers are doing in terms of their spending, as you point out, that it's you know, pedestrian. It's not too it's two percent real. That's not too strong, that's not too weak. It just feels feels right. The University of Michigan survey feels like it's just off the mark, right? No. I don't know. What do you, Matt? Do you have a view? Let's settle this. Sentiment measures in general, I find, have just been so confounding. I was 
Yeah. Um, he's not going to do that. Mercy, you know, he's not going to say, Mark, you're right. So, or Mercy, yeah. you're right. Yeah. yeah. No, move. I mean, clearly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Good move. Yeah, they are that's... confounding, but I think Mercy, yeah. I agree, totally agree with you. This, this, I think almost all, anything that's survey based has a problem uh, because response rates, way people respond, you know, like I, I I know my wife will, and I will, I never responded to a survey. My wife who used to respond all the time doesn't now respond at all because it's just for lots of different reasons. So, um, also okay. the political climate is, could influence survey-based measures. Oh yeah. Go well, look we at know, the, we know yeah. it has, when you look yeah. at the difference between the way, you know, self-identified Republicans respond versus Democrats, it just depends on who's, in the White House, yep. right? So regardless of actual conditions, economic conditions, if you have a Republican in the White House, Democrats think the economy is terrible. And if you have a Democrat in the White House, Republicans overwhelmingly think the economy is terrible, regardless of what it actually is. So that's become an observed major issue in, in these sentiment responses over the past 10 years. It's not it's not new, but it it certainly wasn't to this extent 20, 30 years ago in these surveys. Hey, Grav, and I know we need to move on, but this is fascinating. In, in Europe, you do a lot of, there's a lot of these kind of sentiment surveys as well. Do you, would you have the same kind of issues there as we have same here? Issues. Same exactly issues, exactly the same issues. Yeah, yeah. Right. Can't, really, can't really rely on surveys right now. Consumer confidence surveys give you the impression that, you know, consumers are retrenching like crazy. Well, they are yeah. retrenching, but not to that extent. Yeah. Same sort of thing. They're the gloomiest ever or the gloomiest since the global financial crisis, but that yeah. doesn't really square up with what we see in hard data. The same sort of thing. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, hey, Matt, uh, you're up. What's your mm. number? Well, if you saw my eyes darting around, I was going to go with the University of Michigan inflation oh. expectations, but oh. um, <laughs> discounted or not, uh, but we'll go with 7.7%. In, is that in the inflation report, the CPI report? No, it is not. Right. Is it is it a stat that came out this week? Yes. Is it a government stat? No. Is it it's, in the University of Michigan? No. Is is it in the in National Federation of Independent Business? No. No. <laughs> and you said, I'm sorry, you said it was not a government statistic. Um, okay. Is it in uh, the PPI report? He said not government, though, didn't he? Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, non-government. Yeah. Non uh, Is it mortgage apps related? Uh, you're the closest thus far. It's hou housing related, though. Yeah. Is it a house price series? No. no. I can't think of what... It, it did come out this week, or... It did come out this week. Yes. Uh, hmm. 7.7%. Pardon, Marissa? It's housing related? It is. And it's not particularly obscure, but I'm starting oh. to second guess myself. It's not particularly obscure. Well, that yeah, it's, that's your, because you you know the data so well, nothing's obscure. So uh, you can you give us a hint without giving it away? Uh, comes out every week. Oh, it's the, is it the mortgage rate? It is this thirty-year fixed rate oh. mortgage. Um, oh, yeah, in so, plain sight. Yeah, yeah. It's a, not obscure. Yeah. So the yeah. um, one, my wife and I bought a house a few months ago, so it's top of mind. We got a little bit less than that, so we feel sharp, uh, even <laughs> though we're not. Um, and two, it speaks to the tightening in financial conditions. That's a pretty steep rise over the past, uh, you know, eight 
eight weeks. Um, and kind of my thinking about, okay, tomorrow, yesterday's report, what would this report have to say for the Fed to change course? I think that threshold, change course and, and raise rates again in November, I think that threshold lifted significantly given how tight financial conditions, bond yields have risen, uh, mortgage rates uh, alongside uh, have have gone up higher and are doing a lot of the Fed's work for it. So I think some of the communication you're hearing, uh, which I agree with, is that that tightening is is equivalent to a rate hike. Um, so again, raise the threshold for what they would need. Yesterday would have needed to be a blowout surprise to the upside for for what I would <clears throat> expect would uh, kick off a rate hike in November. It wasn't. Um, so I think we should be increasingly confident that they're going to pause when they meet in a few weeks. Well, that was a good one, Matt, and a good one, Marissa. That that was, I, I, you're right. I mean, that was like right yeah. there, but couldn't. Isn't it reported by the in that NBA report? Yeah, and I know there's different measures, but that's the one on EV, so yeah. that's what I'll go with. Yeah, I asked. You led me astray, man. I asked about that report. <laughs> well, oh, it's a different oh, source. Oh, you said applications. Oh, you're right. I was thinking uh, volume, like the index volume that we report i thought that's what you're referring yeah. to but yeah uh, mortgage app survey nba mortgage app survey yeah okay so I go next? Oh, sorry i think i froze you froze for a minute you froze yeah. Yeah. am i back you're yeah. back yeah i'm back okay very just good. in time just in time okay i don't know what you guys said but i'm sure it was oh, you died, so. <laughs> i was gonna offer to go next okay fire away grab you're up okay so i've got a number and i'll give you a hint it's not that recent a number um but it does relate to what we were talking about earlier, i.e. inflation. It's minus 3.7. Oh, sorry, minus 3.2. Is it a growth rate? It's not that recent. It's a rate. It's, it's, not, it's not like, you know, you, you guys have been talking about data that came out this week. It's this one. This didn't come out this week. Um, but it did come out in August. It didn't. Um... Okay, it, it's an inflation. Number. It is an inflation number. Came out in August, so it's a UK inflation number. Because you recall, I said to you earlier that I don't have the September UK inflation number yet. Minus three point two. Rob, minus three point two. Was it energy prices in the yes, UK? Yes, it's energy inflation in the UK exactly. And this is this is kind of interesting because you could see what energy dynamics are doing. So we've got an increase in petrol prices because of the recent increase in Brent, but the big fall in, in electricity prices because of the come down in gas prices has meant that energy inflation continues in year on year terms to be negative, even though I guess the, the rate of decline is slowed down by the recent increase in, in, in oil prices, but nonetheless, it remains negative. So what's your forecast for September? It's good. Actually, in, in, in the UK, it's going to step down even more um because in october we're going to see a, a reset in retail electricity and gas prices so it's it sort of happens every six months so we had a we had a reset earlier in the year now we're going to get another reset in october so it's going to become an even bigger drag on headline inflation before it fades away hey guys am i i i, I got thrown out i missed the stat what was it what was the number so it's energy inflation in the uk in the august energy. inflation release yes and, and guess who got it right no really <laughs> wow that is masterful i would i never gotten it right i'm glad i tuned out um <laughs> mr lafakis what's your number 
So I woke up thinking of a number and then I thought it was too easy. And then I found a Goldilocks number. And then our discussion inv- inspired me to pick a different number entirely, which oh is my gosh. might be a little bit difficult for you guys to get. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to give it to you anyways. And I'll preface it by saying it is a price because otherwise it would be very hard for you to get. It's 9034 Dollars? Is it an energy price? It is not an energy price. And the unit is dollars per metric ton. Oh, is it? Oh, geez. Uh, dollars per metric ton. $9,000. Is it some sort of carbon price? No, but it has been impacted by climate. And it goes to what Gaurav was speaking to earlier. So you get it. Is that a food price? Yes. Is it some kind of meat price? No. Grain uh-huh. price? No. Fertilizer? It's not fertilizer. No meat, no grain, no fertilizer. Uh, uh, but... What did Mark guess? I, I'm still impaired by my... <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going to tune out. I'm going to. Why don't read... you turn your camera off? Okay, let's try that. Yeah. And just try the audio. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, I didn't guess. Um, it, it, I heard the last thing I heard was a food price, but that's that's where I got. We guessed meat, grain, and fertilizer. And those are all incorrect. Hmm. But you said nine thousand per metric ton. Nine thousand thirty-four dollars per metric ton. Is yes. it like a palm oil or something? Very close. You're very close, Mark. Soybean oil. Soy soybean oil. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're very close though. <laughs> oh gosh. Uh, is it an is it an oil? Yes. <laughs> okay. Sunflower. Sunflower. No, keep going. Olive. Not even keep yes, going. Yes, okay. Marissa. Olives, Marissa. Olives. Very good. Yeah, Marissa. Olives, yeah. Thank you, Marissa. It's olive oil prices, uh nine thousand thirty-four dollars per metric ton. What other oils are there? There's um, lots. There's sunflower, there's soybean. Um, okay, so explain. palm. So the reason why I picked this is because olive oil prices have more than doubled in the last year. They have literally more than doubled in the last year. And it's because of extreme droughts in major producing regions, especially in the Mediterranean region. Um, very little rainfall and very high temperatures. So it goes back to the impact of climate change on inflation and making it more difficult to grow these commodities and um, thus shrinking the supply and and putting prices through the roof. And um, it it causes me to be a little bit, uh, you know, less optimistic in terms of like the long term trajectory of, of, of inflation when it comes to production of raw commodities. Um, but I, I just couldn't resist, guys. It was it was uh, on point and too good of a number. I think it's a great great number. It's a great statistic. Thank you. But Chris, does olive oil like is that mostly a final good, or is it an is it also an input to other things like these other oils are? It's also an input to other goods, but it's it mostly is. a final good. Yes, it does yeah. get into various food products. It's mostly a final good. But to Chris's point about the upward trajectory of food prices from this kind of shock, there's a huge amount of uncertainty about how all this plays out and the time it takes to play out. And I'll give you the example of England, because I'm here in the UK. Um, English wine, I think, is the next big wine. 
Oh. Right? Who, who would have believed that? <laughs> who would have believed that? Right? <laughs> but with climate change occurring, actually, south of England is becoming quite a a good place, a good wine producing region, wow. and and English wine is starting to pick up, just as wines in Bordeaux start to go down. There's been terrible harvest in Bordeaux because of the heat. Um, olive oil, uh, olives might face a similar shift in 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 production, right? So it's really a lot of uncertainty around how all this plays out. But certainly, hmm. last couple of years have been horrendous for olive oil prices in Europe, well, around the world, but Europe being such a big producing region around the Mediterranean. Obviously, a big part of uh, the inflation story is around energy and oil and natural gas, and not only kind of directly, you know, but indirectly through food prices and goods prices. And even more importantly than that, what we were talking about it, uh, oil prices, uh, what we pay at the pump affects inflation expectations, Therefore, wage dynamics, which feeds into inflation. So it's really oil is, despite the fact that the U.S. is now as energy and oil independent as has been in decades, maybe since uh, you know the combustible engine, because uh, we're consuming and producing as much oil, uh, uh, we're producing as much oil as we're consuming. Uh, despite all that, we're we're still very very dependent on oil. It really drives the train here, and uh, you know I. I've been, uh, Chris, I'm going to turn to you. Uh, I've been hoping, praying that oil stays between 80 and $90 a barrel. And uh, like at the mo- at this point in time, last I looked, we're sitting at 85 bucks a barrel on WTI, West Texas Intermediate. Is that, and given events, you know, what happened uh, recently in Israel and what's happening now in Israel and, and Gaza, Although that doesn't have a direct impact on uh, oil energy markets, you know, obviously it's in, in a very sensitive part of the world when it comes to uh, oil and, and uh, other uh, other fossil fuels. Is 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 eighty five kind of sort of where you think we should be? I mean, should we be really worried about prices going higher here, or can we get lucky and they go meaningfully lower? Or how are you thinking about oil prices? Yeah, absolutely. So our forecast is for prices to be at $87 per barrel. That's on Brent in 2024. And I think that there are risks both to the upside and the downside of that. You know, I would kind of want to broaden the conversation to not just oil, however, but to also refining, um, because I think that that has been, and that was going to be my statistic, but it has contributed to the consumer price inflation that we felt. Um, so in terms of what's happening in the oil market, um, we have an elevated amount of excess supply because countries, particularly Saudi Arabia, have have withheld production in order to keep prices where their break even is um, fiscally. Um, at the same time, we've had uh, the U.S. having a little bit of a less um, restrictive policy against Iran that has allowed Iran to export more barrels to the global market. Iranian production has increased by over a million barrels per day since President Biden was elected um, in 2020. Um, So those two have kind of offset each other to some extent. Now with the conflict between Israel and Hamas in Gaza, uh, that dynamic of increased uh, Iranian production and withheld Saudi Arabian production might be uh, unwound to some extent. And the screws might get tightened on Iran a little bit, um, in Saudi Arabia, we would expect to uh, loosen the taps, produce, fill some of that void. Um, so we do have, uh, we we expect oil prices to stay roughly where they are now um, in 2024. In terms of what could, what could go wrong, 
Um, if so, so, so between the obviously oil prices will go up and down and all around, but you're saying on average through yes. the end of next year, prices should remain roughly where they are literally today is what you're saying. Yes, they and should. It's a delicate balance between global supply and demand. And obviously things happen, but right now that kind of dynamic suggests stable pricing here going forward. That's correct. Okay. That's our baseline forecast. The most right. likely scenario is that this conflict in Gaza does not engulf other major oil producers in the region. Iraq doesn't uh, meaningfully change its production uh, levels. Neither does Saudi Arabia. The screws might get tightened on Iranian production a little bit, but we can handle that um, because we have a lot of Saudi production in the bank um, and that this all plays out uh, and and we get a uh, range bound oil price um, over the next uh, six to 12 months. Okay. Just to put a little, few numbers on it and I may have the numbers wrong, but it, uh, I think with the Saudi production cuts, there's probably what, 4 million barrels a day of excess capacity to produce in Saudi, a little bit in UAE, um, a couple of other countries. Is that about right? Four, 4 million. And we just for context, we consume, produce about a hundred million, roughly speaking, hundred million barrels of oil a day globally. So about 4 million in excess capacity. Is that, is that roughly right? It's it's five point one million. Is it with, five? Okay. Yes, and that is a historically elevated number. Um, in a normal, well-functioning market, you'll have between three and three and a half million barrels of, of excess supply, and it has been difficult historically for OPEC to sustain for long periods of time such high levels of excess capacity. Um, it becomes too tempting to pump at at higher prices. So we are expecting some of the voluntary Saudi Arabian uh, 1 million barrel per day production cut to be unwound gradually in 2024. Okay. And, and uh, the other key kind of assumption here is that if other global supplies are impaired, Iran will be a good case in point. And I think, just again, for put a number on it, I think the Iranians are what, exporting 3 million barrels a day? Of oil, well, that that's closer to their actual level of production. Oh, so. I'm sorry, their production is three million barrels a day. Yes, right. okay, and that's up from two. When if you go back to the beginning of the Biden administration, it was about two million. Now we're up to about three. Yes, okay, and you're saying, look, if in a darker scenario, if the events in the Middle East. Um, uh, kind of broaden out and and Iranian it seems most likely that the Iranian oil would be impaired because of their links to Hamas and uh in the conflict and the war then your expectation is Saudi would open up the spigots a bit and fill the void that if you know, say a million barrels of Iranian oil go away we go from back from 3 to 2 Saudi would use some of that excess capacity it's built up here to kind of fill the void and no harm, no foul. We still get the kind of mid eighties on oil prices. That's what you're saying. That's what I'm saying. We have a buffer. Okay. And it, that feels like a pretty tenuous, I mean, that we're making a lot of assumptions there that are pretty risky, right? That the Saudis would actually step in and help out here, but you feel pretty confident in that. Well, I mean, you're you're you you have a point. I mean, the Saudi Arabian um, uh, government has not been too friendly with the Biden administration, and maybe they want to put the screws on the Biden administration heading into a presidential election year, and maybe they withhold prices, uh, withhold production, and let prices go above 100 
um, in order to achieve that. Um, so it it it's cert- there are certainly assumptions that we're making uh, that that could ultimately not come to fruition. Um, but it you know demand is also very sensitive to price, uh, and we've seen this in the immediate response to the um, uh, Russian invasion and subsequent spike in oil prices. And consumer prices have been more affected than uh, just the raw oil price. And that's because of challenges in the refining market. Uh, Coming into the invasion, 2021, the year prior to the invasion, the invasion was in February of 2022, was the first year in the prior 30 years that there had been a global decline in refining capacity. And that was led in part by the US where we had a fire at Philadelphia Energy Solutions uh, refinery. And rather than put forth the capital to uh, refurbish the refinery, the refineries ultimately closed. That was a massive refinery, one of the biggest on the East Coast. Um, And and so we came into the Russian invasion with uh, a squeeze on our uh, ability to uh, refine petroleum and fast forward through the invasion um countries including the united states the uk australia canada and the european union have banned not only crude oil imports from russia but also product imports diesel and gasoline and that has put a squeeze on the global refining capacity and has increased the so-called crack spread the difference between wholesale prices and uh, uh the price of oil uh, wholesale petroleum product prices like diesel and gasoline and the price of oil. Um, if you look actually at where petroleum uh, crack spreads were prior to the invasion, look at the 10 years prior to the invasion, the gasoline crack was $11. Since the invasion, it's been $29. That's a difference of $18 per barrel, which boosts pump prices by 45 cents per gallon. That's just on refining. And for diesel, it's even worse. 70 cents per gallon just on refining again so we're still feeling the aftershocks of the russian invasion of ukraine um and we're feeling it more in the refined petroleum markets than we are in the oil market itself okay okay so let me ask you two questions first and i'll come back to the crack spreads in um in the cost of gasoline in a second but going back to oil uh we're sitting in the mid 80s uh, do you think the, the risks that we go consistently above 90, closer to 100 are greater or less than or equal to the risk that we go below 80 and closer to $70 or, uh, on a consistent basis over the over this period through the end of 24? Which, which, are the risks symmetric here or are they asymmetric in any way? Uh, they might be asymmetric 60-40 to the upside. Okay. Um, the, the principal worry on the downside is that the Fed is impatient and pushes too hard and it undermines demand. And then we have a weaker macroeconomic environment. And yeah, but no, no, don't don't bring in any of that other stuff. But, you know, kind of the global supply. Dem- oh, I guess it is demand. <laughs> okay, fair enough. There's Everything affects demand. But on the, looking at the supply side of the market and what's going on there, you think it's more... 60% probability that we get higher prices than uh, 40% would get lower, meaningfully lower prices than what we're expecting. Yes. And that okay. goes to Saudi Arabia withholding production. Yeah. Okay. A lot of it depends on that. Everything depends on that. Okay. Then let's go back to the crack spread in gas prices. And that's actually something that is, is a bit fortuitous, even though oil prices are up, uh, gas gasoline prices have kind of come in a little bit here, certainly over the last month. And and uh, that those crack spreads, which while they're still wide, while those margins are still wide for refineries, they've come in a little bit. 
So are you saying that you think there's more room for those margins to come in and keep gasoline prices down or, or something else? I mean, they're, they're historically wide for, you know, for lots of reasons. Do you think they might come in some more and we might get lower gasoline prices for, for a given level of oil price? Yeah, I think that there are some reasons for optimism here. Mm-hmm. Um, number one, what you're observing is a seasonal decline in the gasoline crack spread. This happens mm-hmm. every year. Mm-hmm. Um, price, the margins peak in um, May, June, and July. Uh, they are about the seasonal factors are roughly neutral for gasoline prices for the crack spread in October. They decline a little bit in November. They decline more meaningfully in December, January, and February. So you will, we will experience a seasonal decline, and that's about 10 cents per gallon in November, uh, and it goes up to 20, 25 cents per gallon in December, January, February. We're going to get that, um, and that's partly why uh, top-line gasoline prices have have fallen um, a little bit of late. Um, now, going back to crack spreads being elevated since Russia invaded and the squeeze on the refining margin. Um, We talk about this frequently in commodity uh, markets, Mark. The cure for high prices is high prices. And so these wider crack spreads provide producers, the supply side of the economy, Mm. with the incentive to make investments um, so that they can uh, earn more on, on refining. And we we did uh, get the first ever, uh, well, not first ever, but the first refining, uh, first new refinery in the United States since the 1970s uh, that was built uh, quite recently. It's not, it wasn't a big one. It's a Texas International Terminals in Channel View, Texas. Refining capacity is just 45,000 barrels per day. That's about 12 times smaller than the Philadelphia Energy Solutions refinery that closed in, in 2021. But just to the point of you will get more investment over time as these crack spreads remain wide that will compete away, will arbitrage away um, the elevated crack spreads that have happened since the Russian invasion. It's going to it's going to take some time, though. The supply side of the economy does not move quickly. But within the next uh, you know six to 18 months, I would certainly expect uh, that to ex- that to precisely happen. Okay. Okay. I think we're going to end it on that optimistic note. I, I guess I would uh, comment that, uh, again, we, we forecast many things, some things we feel confident in, some not so much. I, I kind of feel confident in the outlook for the growth and the cost of housing services. I feel good about that. Oil prices, gasoline prices, not so much. That's a pretty tough thing to get right because there is so many cross currents here and it's all global and it's geopolitical and there's just really d- difficult to nail down. But, um, but I'll, 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 I'll take the optimism here. I'll take the optimism. Um, okay. I think um, we should call this uh, a podcast. We've covered a lot of ground and taken up a lot of time. Anything else, anything else anybody wants to bring up before uh, we call it quits? Marissa, good to have you back again. Garab, good to see, see you, back. Matt. Anything? Chris? No. Yeah. Okay. Hearing none, uh, we're going to call this a podcast. Take Take care, everyone. See you next week.